I'm an expert when it comes to bee products. Like Mm -hmm. I was literally a beekeeper, so I really understand them. Mm -hmm. And the way that we work with bees and the way that we work with bees sustainably is very unique and it's challenging to work with bees. It's a challenging environment. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Did anyone ever say to you, that's a bad idea, it's never going to work, stick to the tried and true, why do you want to waste your time? And when they said that to you, if they did say that to you, how did you react? Did you fold your cars? Did you really get angry? Did you resent that negativity? I mean, these are the questions anyone who's ever tried to do anything new has had to deal with today and probably uh, for a very, very long time. It's one of the reasons why change is so hard. People don't like it. People are afraid of it and might even be worse in many other countries where they really don't want you to be any different than everybody else. You know, I've spent some time in Australia and I love the country. I have great friends there. They have something called the tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Tall poppy syndrome. It's commonly used to disparage anyone who might have the nerve to try to be different and better than anyone else. It's kind of an incredible mindset and a particularly self-defeating one. It's self-defeating for a group of people in a particular place or in a country who adopt that mindset because it makes it so much more difficult to be innovative and it makes entrepreneurship much more difficult. After all, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to try to create something that doesn't exist, has not existed before, you are going to be looked at from other people as kind of rocking the boat. And some places culturally that becomes a problem. I mean, it's kind of opposite the Silicon Valley mindset, but the truth is that it exists in lots of places, not just Australia, but a lot of places in the United States as well. And it's self-defeating for the individual entrepreneur because you don't want to let other people's opinions get in the way of what you really want to do with your lives. I mean, yes, listen, get feedback, be open open-minded, but you can't let somebody else control your agenda and control what it is you want to do. A long time ago, I learned that a lot of the things that we do in life, we have to make that choice. We have to make that choice on their own. In fact, there have been times when people have wanted me to do something and they even tell me how good or told me how good I'd be at it, which of course is great because it appeals to your ego, but I didn't do it because while I was tempted, deep down, I didn't really want to do it. I realized uh, it doesn't actually matter whether somebody says, you know, you're going to be good at it, you should do that. If it's something that doesn't mean something to you, if it's something that you don't really care about, then you have to be strong and you have to be able to be self-aware enough to recognize that's not really what I want to do. You know, all of this comes to mind because my guest on this episode of the SIDCast is Carly Stein. As the founder and CEO of the wellness brand Beekeepers Naturals, Carly's mission is to improve the health of, of humans and bees alike, which is why she left her job in the trading floor at Goldman Sachs to launch Beekeepers Natural full-time in 2016. The company has a mission, and the way they put it is, we want to revamp your medicine cabinet. Rather than relying on conventional junk like refined sugars and artificial ingredients, they have developed a series of or set of nutraceuticals, which are made from plant extracts and powerful remedies from the beehive, royal jelly, propolis, uh, bee pollen, and to try to make the most out of what nature has, has to offer. Carly and her team use science 
and rigor to try to craft high-quality solutions to deal with everyday health problems. And it's pretty amazing when you look into the research that uh, these extracts, especially from bees, can help deal with low-energy, scratchy throats and the like. As a beekeeper and really an advocate for the preservation of the global bee population, which has been an issue, Carly is dedicated using her company to be this platform to make a difference, raise awareness for the bee cause, and to create a company, a company that's going to make a difference for herself and many others as well. She actually was recently recognized as one of these game-changing entrepreneurs in last year's list of Forbes 30 under 30, which is really pretty impressive, 30 people under the age of 30. When Carly was ready to start her own business, to leave Goldman Sachs, of all things, there was no shortage of naysayers. In fact, lots of people thought she was crazy. I mean, who leaves Goldman Sachs to start making pollen? But rather than discourage her, it actually emboldened her. And it's actually a good example, too, of having a chip on your shoulder and how it could actually be a good thing. Because she took everyone's doubts and questions and puzzlement at trying to create a company like this. And she figured out a way to build a company that would answer and address all of those questions. She was taking that negativity that was around her and trying to turn into something positive. And that's a pretty good lesson right there. I recorded this episode with Carly before the COVID crisis hit. So we won't be talking specifically about COVID, but in a follow-up phone call that I had with Carly, it seems pretty apparent that for many people that are sheltering in place and our lives are slowing down and we're trying to take care of ourselves, that personal health has never been more important. And that actually translates pretty well if you're a company in the health and wellness space, trying to do things in an organic and original way as Carly and Beekeepers Naturals are trying to do that. One more thing, this is actually one of a handful of episodes in season two that I recorded face-to-face, obviously in the pre-COVID era. And, you know, reflecting back on that conversation that you're about to hear, I can't help but think of what we're all missing by being in isolation. Now, of course, I know we're reopening in some places and it's not always going so well, and hopefully it will get better. But so many of us have been in isolation of some form. And even as we open a little bit, it's not the same as it used to be. But all we could do is hope it's going to get better and do what we can for each of us in doing what we need to do, which includes wearing masks, socially distancing, washing our hands, and all those other things that we know we should do, and hopefully we're all doing that. In the SIDCast, we're going to try to do our own part. We're going to try to learn and think and share and think about how we can do better as well. And so we're going to try to do our small part, starting now with my conversation with entrepreneur Carly Stein. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein here with Carly Stein. Hi, Carly. Hi. I'm glad you are able to make it and chat about all things bees. Where did you get this idea? So the idea really evolved organically. I was very interested in natural health and I was struggling with chronic tonsillitis and I did a semester abroad during my undergrad and when I got very sick, a pharmacist in Florence gave me this stuff called propolis. It was the first time something worked for me and it was from that experience that I got involved with the bees and just became fascinated with the bees as creatures and their byproducts. So you were taking some other meds to deal with this tonsillitis? I was having a really hard time. I'm allergic to a lot of ingredients and over-the-counter cold and flu mm-hmm. products. So, you know, most people, if they have something like tonsillitis, they'll go get antibiotics or, you know, if they're right. dealing with this sort of thing, they'll go to CVS and buy some over-the-counter medicine. Mm-hmm. A lot of those are not accessible to me. And so that pushed me to really explore the world of natural health. And I explored that world for a very long time without really finding resolution. And it was only when I stumbled into this 
pharmacy in Florence that I found something that worked. Well, Italy solves a lot of problems, I think, <laughs> in every category. You've tried other natural solutions. Yes. They just didn't work. I tried so many things. And are there a lot of things out there? That- there are not that many specifically relating to viral infections. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fantastic natural products, a lot of things that can boost your immune system and help to prevent getting sick. But I found that when I was really struggling with something that can be as nasty as tonsillitis, nothing natural was really doing the trick. I learned a lot exploring mm-hmm. that world but I often was very frustrated and I became quite disillusioned with the natural product world as a consumer before starting. And that really shaped the way that I think about running my business today. So How so? What do you mean? So my commitment to scientific integrity. Uh As a consumer, I was spending a lot of time and money looking for natural products that would make me feel better. Mm -hmm. And I was often swayed by marketing and, you know, celebrity Mm -hmm. endorsements. And I was looking for the latest and greatest products Mm -hmm. to make me feel like Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) And I would spend money on these fancy things that really just didn't deliver on results. And it was a really frustrating experience, especially for me, because I didn't really have alternatives that were accessible. I can't take most conventional medicine. So I was often left sick and just having to wait out the recovery. And that was really frustrating. And so, you know, starting a company, I really, before I verbalized that I wanted to start a company, I was just building a product line for myself to help me feel better. And so I really spent time perfecting that. And then once I made the commitment to bringing it to market, I really felt strongly about doing this differently, maintaining a level of scientific integrity, transparency with all of our sourcing, all of our production, and really making products that, although are using completely natural ingredients and sit in the natural health world, can be relied upon to help people truly feel better and recover from what they're struggling with. Yeah, I'm really interested in the scientific evidence thing and that versus branding and how you kind of see the whole kind of ecosystem. But first of all, what category are we in now? talking about an alternative to meds? Are we talking about cosmetics? Talking about wellness? Or maybe all of the above? A little bit. All of the above minus cosmetics in a traditional sense. So we're in a nutraceutical category. So natural pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. or, you know, alternative wellness, natural medicine. Those are all words that are kind of thrown around. Homeopathic when solutions? Homeopathic can be used at times. That doesn't fit our product class entirely. Homeopathic mm-hmm. can be... It's interesting the way retailers define these different categories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes we don't sit there. When we're talking to retailers, they place us in the health and beauty category. So that's what we're considered. Mm -hmm. But truly our line is natural medicine. That's what we make. We're making alternatives to the cold and flu products and cough syrups and all the stuff that we grew up buying at CVS. We're making natural effective versions of all of those things. Yeah. What are the pharmaceutical companies doing about any of this? Do they have, because you get a Glaxo or you get a Novartis that start paying attention to this and all of a sudden there's a billion dollars behind it. Yeah. So first of all, in the natural category, it's a little bit tricky because you can't patent an all-natural formula. So that makes us... No, you cannot patent nature. So that that makes us... That takes us into a different world and makes us sort of not competitive. That means that anything that has a patent is not natural in some fundamental way. It can have way. natural ingredients, yeah. but it means maybe the delivery method has been altered mm-hmm. or it's been modified in some way. And that's the ownership. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. property right there that somebody okay. can purchase um, or own. And so because we're all natural, we're not patentable, which I think, you know, 
is why North America is so behind when it comes to bee products and a few other natural things. Bee products are used in other parts of the world mm-hmm. regularly. Well, yeah. They are in Florence, we know that, but yes. other places too. Yes, very. So propolis, which is one of the active ingredients in my products, it was the first bee product that I was introduced to. It's antiviral, antibacterial, and antimicrobial, and it's what really helps me recover from tonsillitis. So bee propolis has been used since 300 BC. It's not you know a new hot ingredient. It's something that humans have been using to recover long before the advent of modern medicine. And so across, you know, in other cultures, it's very, very commonplace. In Europe, it's very highly regarded as an immune booster. It's it's what you take when you have cold, flu, sore throat. In Asia, it's used. In Korea, it's actually becoming really popular topically for skincare products. It's anti-inflammatory, so it's really great for things like blemishes and then antibacterial, which also helps. So we have a long history with these bee products. We just have sort of lost sight in North America. And lost sight for what reason do you think? I mean, it sounds like a good business opportunity. It has been a good business opportunity <laughs> so far. Lost sight is probably the wrong way to describe I mean, why it. Why is it in America. the U.S. if it's in Europe, if it's in Asia? So there's a few things. So first of all, honeybees are not native to North America. They were brought over by European settlers, mm-hmm. and orig- when they were brought over, they were really used for pollination in honey, and that has been you know what they continue to be used for today. So primarily, people know bees as the makers of honey, yes. and they're used more and more in commercial pollination. I mean, we're losing the bees in consumption of bee pollinated crops has gone way up and so commercial pollination has become a huge industry and I think they, they were brought over for a specific purpose and their byproducts and the medicinal effects of them were just not really known and sort of lost yeah. in translation. So tell me a little bit about the scientific evidence for this. Yeah so there's actually a ton of research behind propolis. I mentioned it's antiviral antimicrobial, antibacterial so you know it's fantastic when it comes to struggling with basically anything cold and flu related. You can really take it in place of cough syrup, that sort of thing. Um, There's been quite a few studies looking at propolis for that. And then there's also research behind its antibacterial and antibacterial effects for very hard to treat illnesses. So things like herpes, even inflammatory conditions like colitis, H. pylori, a lot of these things have some great research with propolis. Propolis also, it's really high in antioxidants. And there's actually a study done with competitive cyclists. And it found that people who used propolis after very intense workout, it reduced the post-oxidative stress. So it helps your body to calm down and combat the exercise-induced free radicals. So propolis has a lot of incredible benefits. There's so much that it can do, and sometimes I feel like I'm promoting this cure-all, but truly it has a lot of fantastic benefits, and when you are both anti-inflammatory and antibacterial, there's just a lot that you can get done under those umbrellas. You brought me a little throat spray that says propolis throat spray, beekeepers natural. So I would just give this a little spritz right there down the throat and it would help deal with the sore throat. Exactly. Three to five sprays, fantastic for getting rid of sore throats. You can also use it regularly just to boost your immune system and prevent getting sick. Does it work on skin as well? Yeah. So things like that. It definitely does. So that product, that's why I said that we're not traditionally in the beauty category, but we have a lot of customers who will use our products topically, which is really interesting. So you were looking for a solution to your problem, Mm -hmm. your personal health problem. You got into this and you became a beekeeper or what did you do? Yeah. So I found this product when I was in Italy. I started using it. I completely recovered. And then as I was traveling around, I started finding these bee products all over Europe. And it was so... Because you were looking. I was looking, yeah. That's a classic thing about... It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist until you start looking. I mean, totally different category. Cars. If you're looking for a certain type of car, you never saw it before. But all of a sudden, everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of... There's a click in the brain that actually, I think, has a lot of implications for many, many things. I bet you've even seen it in various parts of 
now we're getting off track a little bit, various parts of your business when you're at a certain stage and you thought about it, but not as much as you're thinking about it right now. And you say, wow, it's there. I could pick up this. I could pick up this. It's, I certainly have seen that in almost everything that I end up doing. Just listening to your story, I can connect it to a dozen different things. Absolutely. So yeah. Let's go back so, to your story. <laughs> so I had that exact experience. I started seeing bee products everywhere mm-hmm. and it was really interesting. In France, I was seeing Royal Jelly products for brain health. I, you know, all these different use cases. But one thing that was very clear to me, there was all the branding was very fragmented. There was no one bee product brand. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the products were very folky looking and didn't really explain the medicinal effects. Mm-hmm. But everybody had this awareness of them and I started using them, incorporating them into my routine and I was feeling great. I didn't get sick for the rest of my time abroad, which was unique for me because I had a horrible immune system. And I just, you know, I certainly was not thinking about starting a business. I just thought this was really interesting and yeah. I finally found something that works and I was involved with that. And I finished up my semester abroad and went back home to finish up college and I got sick. And when I got sick, I couldn't find propolis anywhere. I went to every health food store. Nobody really knew what I was talking about. There was honey and there was manuka honey and, you know, some things that were related, but I couldn't specifically find propolis. And I finally found propolis at a farmer's market and it was organic and in this beautiful bottle and it was very expensive. And I used it and I had a really bad allergic reaction. Mm. And I had the benefit of being a student at the time and I was taking a bunch of chemistry courses. And so I ran a toxicity panel on the product I had purchased. Uh, And you discovered? Pesticides. So that was upsetting, especially after of course, buying nothing like that on the label. Yeah, of course <laughs> not. Buy of course that. not. Well, actually, and it said organic on the label, and so I started really learning about the about bee products specifically. Mm-hmm. And one thing that became very clear was the organic certification doesn't exactly hold up because unlike cattle, where you can fence them in, mm-hmm. or blueberries, which stay in one spot, the bees fly, and you can't put a leash on the bees, and they'll actually forage for a five mile radius. And so, just because your ground is certified organic, if your neighbors are doing something dirty, there's a high probability that it's going to get into the bee products. How did you solve that problem? So I had to start beekeeping, So and still not thinking about starting a company. Mm -hmm. I just needed to get this product and get Mm -hmm. it in a quality that worked for me. I had to start keeping bees in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So I started doing that. Mm -hmm. The, again, benefit of being in college and college in Canada. Where I went to college, I went to University of Victoria, so it's on Vancouver Island. Lots of green space. Mm -hmm. And I found a mentor who was keeping bees in a pretty remote location and I started working with him I became his apprentice I literally just worked for free evenings and weekends and in exchange he was teaching me all about the bees he's actually a third generation Romanian beekeeper and a retired biochemist who moved to Canada and be recluse and live in this beautiful cabin and then this annoying kid in their 20s came knocking at his door (laughs) sounds like he was amenable to doing that mentoring sounds like a perfect background yeah he really really he did Um, and he does he's moved back to Romania since because he's got grandkids but he's wonderful and taught me so much. Um, So it was kind of a perfect situation. I was learning all about the bees and I've always been very into animals and creatures and the environment. And so once I learned about the bees and the important role they play in pollination, I was fascinated by that. And then learning about the products as well and building them myself and really working with the bees. Um, And then being a student at the time, I had access to our university database. I had access to the lab. So I started really messing around and making products. And I was just making products for myself and perfecting them for myself. And I started sharing them with friends. And next thing you know, people on campus were Facebook messaging me asking to buy these bee products. Uh, And so that was my first moment where I was like, okay, this might work for, you know, a broader population. There's obviously an interest in natural alternatives if these broke college students are like willing to pay a premium from products 
sold out of some chick's dorm room. Did you so actually sell some of this? I did. I mostly gave it away, but I occasionally, if it was like somebody I didn't know at all, and mm-hmm. at certain points in time, I would charge a small amount of money. So yeah, it was just my hobby, and I did not think I could make a career out of it because making a career out of bee products sounds crazy. But I was completely in love with these products. They really changed my health. I was obsessed with the bees, and I really fell in love with beekeeping. But I tabled all of that because I got a job offer in finance at a college, and that makes a lot more sense to most people. So you went to, was it Wall Street or so Toronto? So first I went to Toronto. I work at this hedge fund. It's a company called Genuity, which Canaccord has since acquired. And the partners who started Genuity, it was a boutique investment firm, started a hedge fund. And it was them and this Goldman Quant who had came over, who'd come back to Toronto from New York. He's Canadian. And they hired me and I started in research. It was a quant fund though. So the research was mostly just putting out reports. Mm. And I quickly moved into a sales and business development role. And I kind of, it was a small team. So I was kind of doing a little bit of everything. And I really loved that. And then 10 months into that, I got recruited by Goldman. And that's when I started splitting time between Toronto and New York. And I joined Goldman as a trader. And so I was at Goldman from 2014 to the end of 2016, I think. And Goldman was, I had a great experience, but that was when it really became clear that I just wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. What were you doing with the bees when you were doing the nothing? Nothing. I was making, so what I would do is I still would get the raw product from Mm -hmm. my mentor, John, in British Columbia. He would send it to me, and then I had bought some Mm -hmm. basic lab equipment on Amazon, Mm -hmm. so I could just make... So in your apartment, you had this thing going on here. Yeah. It was, my (laughs) friends used to joke, and I actually, in my apartment in LA, I still have a lot of lab equipment, and so my friends would make a lot of, like, breaking bad jokes about me. Um, It looks a little strange, but I was making these products for myself and working in finance. I think when I was at the hedge fund, I enjoyed that, although, you know, finance is just not what I meant to do. I enjoyed that experience because it was a small team and so I was able to be very entrepreneurial. When I moved over to Goldman, it was a fantastic experience in many ways, but I'm just not excited about the financial sector. And that just became more and more clear. And I was feeling really out of touch with what I was doing. And so I made a spreadsheet about happiness because I was feeling really you unhappy. And the thing that I kept coming back to was the bees, which, you know, that was, I was splitting time between Toronto and New York. So that was not really accessible to me. The spreadsheet? How do you do this? Yeah. Criteria? Yeah. So I was basically ranking my happiness and taking stock of like all activities that make me feel happy in the past five years. <laughs> so you, you rated all these various things mm-hmm. and did they give you no negative happiness? Is that in there or just zero happiness? Just zero. Zero, just zero. So you could have gone even further in the geek, <laughs> geek squad there. But so you rated zero to 10 or whatever it mm-hmm. is and then you then say... What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what career path to take because Mm -hmm. I was in a good situation. I had a great job, but I was really not feeling fulfilled and I didn't know what else there was for me out there. And I kept coming back to the bees and natural products. Do you talk to any of the your senior colleagues or even partners at Goldman or MDs about this? A little bit. This not crazy really. idea of the bees. You probably didn't want to share it. I didn't so. really want to share it towards the end I did, and it was not well received. Not well received. <laughs> <laughs> they could not understand it. No. I was outright told that it was a very bad idea. Bad idea. Because mm-hmm. look what you could be doing here. I'd like to be around when the conversation happens in two to five years when you're thinking IPO and Goldman <laughs> comes to pitch with you. That'll be a fun conversation. I've, I've already had some very <laughs> gratifying conversations with some former team members so I mean that's really nice or when they call you and say you have room for me (laughs) you need a CFO that sort of thing has now happened which is also really exciting but I actually had one experience when I was leaving and 
I worked with some really fantastic people at Goldman. Not everybody was the right personality type for me, but I had one experience that I think back to very often. It was one of my managers. I was letting him know that I think I'm thinking about moving on to pursue this crazy startup idea. And I really love natural products. And he has no idea what our margin structure looks like. So he was using arbitrary numbers and he basically was putting down what my future would look like with this B product company versus my future at Goldman Sachs. And my future with the B product company was basically ending up in my parents' basement. <laughs> and then at the end of it, he's like, and I think the whole wellness thing is a fad and it's going to go out soon. Yeah, that was actually an amazing experience because that was kind of what I needed to be like, yep, I'm still going to do this. Yeah, because it also gives you a window into the mindset of that industry. I mean, obviously not everyone, but it's a business based on money and making money and creating products that are financial in orientation. And for a lot of those people, they did that little spreadsheet thing. I suppose, I don't know a lot, but some of them, they'll say, yeah, I'm in the right place. It depends on what you care about, right? Mm-hmm. You can make a lot of money on Wall Street. You can do very well if that's what you want. Hardly anyone I know is against money, so that's a good thing. And it's a, a lot more bumpier road. You know the track record for startups. What did your parents say about this? Leaving Goldman Sachs to go do the B thing? My parents were quite concerned. They as Well, they should have been as a parent myself. Yeah, yes. they were quite concerned. Most people in my life, although it was the dialogue was maybe a little bit more gentle than that particular manager. Um, Most people were very concerned. They thought that I was making a huge mistake. I had a few interventions from loved ones. Um, I didn't have a lot of support doing this at all. And when I left Goldman, what I actually did to kind of get away from all of the negativity, I went to Southeast Asia for a few months and I just kind of, I worked at a co-work space in Bali called Hubud, which is the most beautiful Mm -hmm. co-work space ever. Um, And I just started to strategize and get clear and I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time meditating um, just to dive into that Bali stereotype, (laughs) like a lot of meditation and yoga. Um, But I really was thinking about my future with this company and the potential and what I could create and product development and really refining a business plan. And then I came back and I put together a small round and got to work. And that was 2017 that I raised our first round. Can you share how much you raised the first round? Yeah, so very small. We raised 700000 in the first round and I had put most of my savings into the business mm-hmm. so, you know, I had some inventory lined up and I had some, it was yeah. pretty ready to go mm-hmm. and so I raised that small round and that was a push we needed and yeah, we kind of haven't stopped since. We just closed our Series A a few months ago now. For how much? 3.5. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so was it a family and friends or were there professional, were there angels, professional investors? I don't imagine venture capitalists at that stage. No, definitely not for that size. So the first round, I didn't have any family or friends that wanted to invest or that I was comfortable yeah, kind of asking. They implied as much. They thought you were nuts. Okay. <laughs> so it was mostly angel investors. Mm-hmm. We had like a syndicate come in and a small, do you know the company Thrive Market? It's an online marketplace. no. no. So that, they, that's a collection of angels that... So a syndicate that came in is Wild Ventures, and that's a collection mm-hmm. of angels. And then a bunch of just different angel investors, mostly in the financial world in New York. Right. So that made up a lot of my investor base. And then it just kind of... When I started sharing the products, mm-hmm. I started meeting one person after another. And then Thrive Market, we were their first portfolio investment. So they came into our seed round. They're think of like online Whole Foods, which I know is Amazon, but <laughs> think of a more curated shopping experience. That's Thrive Market. They're pretty big. So they backed us and that was really helpful because we got on their platform right away. And that was right. So great. that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, probably you were turned down by a lot of investors too. Yeah. What did they say? So like, what I made was... the difference between someone saying, I'm going to back this young woman and 
someone else walking away. You wouldn't believe the story I just heard today. I was very, very ready to get out there pitching because I had so much, I was like really fueled by anxiety. I had so much negativity. I had everybody who I kind of explored this idea with yep. and was, you know, willing to be vulnerable enough to share my idea really shut it down. Really? And so when I came back and was ready to start fundraising, I was so unbelievably ready. So I had an answer for every question. You had a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, very grateful for that because I really had an answer it's for every question. It's a sign of a lot of people that I've talked to and studied that have done amazing things. That motivation, because you're going to be told no forever. And one thing I'm curious about, and then I want to hear more about kind of the pitch that you did. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to say now, and it's easy to say, you know, because I'm not an investor. But I could imagine the story being, well, you know, you're going to learn a ton out of this. You're not going to be on the street if it doesn't work. You're going to get back in your feet. You know, you've already worked at a premier firm in finance. You will have alternatives. You'll have a story to tell. And so at a minimum amount of learning, as a learning experience, and being very young, why not do it? I mean, that's how I would look at it. That's what I would have told you. I appreciate that. I don't that. know if I would have given you money, <laughs> but that's what I would have told you. I appreciate that. That was ultimately what I came to. I figured that I'm not getting any younger if I'm going to make a major risk or take a major risk. Now's the time. And I want to give myself the opportunity and just see what happens. Yeah. So talk mm -hmm. about the pitch. So what did you do? Yeah, so people were actually very responsive. Mm -hmm. We closed the seed round, I think, in two or three weeks after opening it, and we closed it oversubscribed. I actually set out to raise, I think, four or 500000 and I went up to seven. And yeah, people were really receptive. I had the story down, though. It's not... So tell me the story. <laughs> I know well, the story, but tell me the story. Like, the it short... was just really digging into yeah. the hole in the market. Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge appetite for wellness, and where we're not seeing a lot of innovation is in the cold and flu category and the traditional medicine category and there is really room for a scientific alternative and so all of our products we build them in Canada so they're NPN certified which means we legally validate all the health claims we make so I had set that up prior to going out and fundraising so anybody who was kind of skeptical about the product offering I was like sure let me just send you a little bit of homework and I would send over studies and all kinds of things yeah, and it, it was demonstrate this that's yeah, what it's what you say exactly exactly and so I did that um, and I was you know very very aggressive about demonstrating that the um, efficacy of the products and then really just showing the growth in the natural health sector. I mean, it, it's really a growing space. It, same with, you know, there's an appetite for sustainable products and these products are very innovative and across other cultures, bee products, as we've discussed, are very well known. And even in other cultures where they're well known, there's not one unifying brand. So there's an opportunity to really become a category king. So kind of just answer the question, but I want to go a little further. What did you say about competition? There's no patent. There's no protection. Any big player can do such a thing if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. They could also do, you know, they have the science and they, they'll have deeper, deeper pockets. And what do you say to that? I'm sure you got that question all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, that is just the state of affairs with the natural product category. But specifically what we're doing, we're actually kind of insulated in a different way. One is because we're, I'm an expert when it comes to bee products. Like mm -hmm. I was literally a beekeeper, so I really understand them. Mm -hmm. And the way that we work with bees and the way that we work with bees sustainably is very unique and it's challenging to work with bees. It's a challenging environment to even keep bees. I'm sure everyone's heard in the news about how the bees are dying out. Mm -hmm. And so that gives us, there's some barriers to entry when it comes to really making bee products people don't understand them. It's hard to work with bees. It's hard to find bees. It's hard to place bees in the right geographies to withstand climate change, that sort of thing. Um, and then it's also, it's weird. It's very weird, very niche. There's not that many people who are experts in this specific area. Right. Um, there's not that many products that are competitive using, you know, the more nuanced ingredients from the hive, like royal jelly and pollen and propolis. 
And so, you know, there was really room for us. And I mean, I've done so many decks in my life and looking at the competitive analysis slides, I have no idea what my first deck for this company looked like, but it was pretty, I remember it was pretty much our competitors were like NyQuil, Buckley's and things in a very different category with a very different ingredient profile and ingredients that a lot of consumers today are not looking to put in their bodies. Yeah. And can you run out of bees? If it's hard to get bees, hard to kind of manage that. And as you grow, you're going to need a tremendous raw material source. Mm -hmm. So if we run out of bees... We're all in trouble. We're all in trouble, yeah. (laughs) Forget my company. (laughs) But you need a lot of bees just for your purposes. We do, we do. So what we do, we have a system down. So I mentioned the five mile radius situation. Mm -hmm. So we do pesticide free beekeeping. We also have another quality measure. We're the only bee product company that practices third party pesticide testing. So once we harvest our raw product, we send it to a third party lab. They test for every pesticide, toxin and pollutant in accordance with Health Canada, which is more rigorous than the US. And after that, we'll do a product run with it. And so we have to really go above and beyond to make sure our bees aren't exposed to pesticides. One, because it would be incredibly expensive for us we wouldn't be able to use that product. Mm -hmm. And two, it gives us a product quality that we can really get behind. And three, it allows us to have impact. Pesticides are one of the major harmful things to the bees. And if we can keep bees in a way that sort of liberates them from the pesticides, then we're doing a good job. So we work with bees in remote locations, mostly in Canada. Canada is a massive landmass with a small population. So there's lots of green space. How do bees do in the cold weather? Great. We overwinter them. You just wrap the hives. Mm -hmm. They hibernate. It's totally fine. They hibernate. They do. Mm -hmm. Like bears, they harbor. Yeah. For how long? The whole winter. So what bees actually do is they'll get together and they'll kind of like huddle in a circle and they vibrate and they create a lot of heat inside the hive. If it's a really cold winter, we'll also wrap the hive with some materials just to kind of add some insulation. But they overwinter very well. And then we're working more and more in Brazil. And we're working in Brazil because we found some apiaries there that meet our standards of sustainability. So, you know, we've done the soil sample testing and product testing and they're clean and we can get behind them. And then also I still have one-on-one conversations with the beekeepers to make sure that they hold up our sustainable values. I mean, I do apiary audits. I try to do them quarterly, but I'm constantly in dialogue with our apiary partners. Apiary is a bee farm, by the way. So that's a big thing. And yeah, that's really how we've looked at scaling is finding green spaces that sort of meet our standards and then either finding a beekeeper there or finding a beekeeper who could work with us and placing them on that land. Since you started, anyone else coming after you doing the same thing, more or less? Have you noticed? Propolis has become... When something comes up, people hear about it and say, yeah, you know, I could do that. Definitely. So we're starting to see more competitors in just the natural medicine category. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen some more competitors pop up that have similar messaging to us. There's more people using propolis as an ingredient for sure. I'm seeing that in a lot of general wellness formulas Mm -hmm. and immune boosters. I feel pretty confident that most companies couldn't match our product quality. Like our propolis, our our bee products are really clean because we just, we know how to do it in that way. Mm -hmm. And we really know how to work with them. So, you know, I'm not super intimidated by other companies that are throwing a propolis product into their line. But the whole conversation around nutraceuticals and natural medicine has just become really hot in recent years. Mm -hmm. And it's going to become more and more competitive. So there'll be more and more. You just have to stay ahead. So I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about kind of the value chain and all of this. So you're producing, got the bees and you're producing the raw ingredients Mm -hmm. that you then convert to various products. And you've got a bunch of them, but you think keep creating new products based on that raw material. Yep. So you have kind of like an R&D lab that you We do, yeah. Yeah. So we have a chem team and we also work with a few third-party contract chem facilities. And okay. so what we do, so our products, they're not, not every product is just coming from the hive. We'll combine bee products with different plant-based ingredients. We have, you know, 
We use things like CBD. We'll use adaptogens, things like ashwagandha and bacopa monnieri and all. What are these? <laughs> these are all plant-based ingredients. Mm-hmm. So bacopa monnieri, for example, it's an extract from a leaf that was mm-hmm. traditionally used in Ayurvedic medicine. It's an adaptogen, so it helps to modulate your body's stress response. And it's very well known as a memory booster. And so it's really great for both calming you down and then supporting your brain function. So we have that in our Belixir Brain Fuel product, which is a product that's for focused memory and concentration. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at basically what health concerns do people have today? Is it a lack of focus? Is it a hard time sleeping? Is it chronic sore throats and immune concerns? Is it low energy? And we build products around that using natural ingredients. And in each product, it will have one core component coming from the beehive. So there's also the brand that's being created, which I think you're spending a lot of time on. Mm-hmm. You've been on TV, you've done a lot of media, doing podcasts, many podcasts. Have you thought about these different, maybe there are other components, but there's three we're talking about now. And tell me if there's another big one. One is the farm, the production of the ingredients. Second is the combination, to the product creation, new product development based on those raw ingredients and maybe other stuff. And then the third is the brand. Those are the three major Those are the parts. three major ones, yeah. yeah. Have you thought about whether you want to do all three? Because you could see in every industry, there's examples of companies that focus on only one aspect of that value chain become the place. Especially, you made me think about it because you said, you know, you do all this testing and you know how to produce uh, propolis that is very, very high quality mm-hmm. and probably better, maybe better than most, if not everyone right now. Well, that's a pretty powerful For thing. sure. That's something that multiple brands might want. We've had a lot of companies reach out asking us to just be a supplier. And maybe at some point in time, we start supplying other companies with high quality B products. Yeah. But right now, we're focused on exclusively building our brand. And that's because I think we have an edge when it comes to creating products. I think we have a really innovative team and we create great products that work. And I think our brand is one that has a lot to say, both about the state of affairs in the wellness world and also about the environment we really use the brand as a vehicle to have a conversation around pollinators and the important role they play could you imagine some instagram celebrity of which there are many Mm -hmm. right now this is happening in cosmetics all the time right and this person comes to you and says i want to put out my you know whatever her name or his name is and can you create the product because you talk about how you're really good at product creation so that it's somebody else's brand i can't imagine you do that we would say no that is that something that we've we've had that happen yeah Um, we've had that happen and we've said no what we are open to doing is co-branded products mm-hmm. in that situation and maybe that's something we do you know short-term campaigns with co-branded products in the future mm-hmm. but we're very focused on building this brand in this company and I also really enjoy all three of those elements and so I right mm-hmm. now want to kind of but they're very different across skills, all three. Right. they are very very different yeah they're very different I think so I had a, he's I guess not technically a co-founder but I call him my co-founder my best friend he was a former M&A lawyer he joined me a year after about a year after I started it, maybe a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, and he left the legal world 2018 and became our full-time COO. So now he manages a lot of our supply chain build out, which is fantastic. So I really focus on product development and marketing. Yeah, this would be an interesting thing to follow because I could see, especially as there's more competition from various startups, but then there's also some bigger companies that want to do this and they might not do as good a job but they have this gigantic advantage because of their deep pockets and they already have mega distribution channels Mm -hmm. speaking about distribution channels you've got something going on with whole foods yeah so we have been a direct-to-consumer brand since we started um we've built a really great following on our website and we've done very well on amazon we're actually our propolis spray is consistently in the top five for cold and flu products on amazon so we've built out we've beat out a lot of the legacy brands like 
the NyQuil's and Buckley's that I've mentioned. Top five products. Products in, in the cold, cold and, and flu. flu. Yeah. There are thousands of products yeah. in that category. Yeah. Wow. It works really, really well. Cool. <laughs> uh, so that's been fantastic. And now we're making the transition into a more omni-channel strategy. And we're starting with retail. So we're launching nationally with Whole Foods in the spring. So tell us about that. How did you get to them? They must have everyone pitching them. Yes, they, they, are, they, they certainly are the perfect, do. I mean, I'm sure you thought this is the perfect retailer mm-hmm. for my product. They are. And it's interesting. We've had, we actually had some more mainstream chains reach out to us, wanting us to launch with them and with a huge store count. And we actually turned them away because we didn't think it was strategic to launch with a non-natural partner Mm -hmm. because, you know, we're still really educating about our product offering and the nuances there. So, I mean, we did a lot of brand work. We've had, one, we've been very fortunate to have products that are very well received in the marketplace, but we have done a ton of digital advertising, a ton of influencer campaigns. You know, we've been endorsed by everyone from Cameron Diaz to the Kardashians. And so our brand in the small world that is natural wellness Mm -hmm. has become a little bit known. So Whole Foods started to hear about us. We, we got on their radar. Um, and then also, I mean, because we have really strong sales on Amazon, that doesn't hurt. And we started pitching and we pitched the buyers and we got approved. And I thought that they were going to do sort of a pilot program where they mm-hmm. launch us in a few locations. That's typically what's done. But they're like, surprise, we want to go national. So so, uh, so you have to gear up your production. Yes, in a huge way. In a huge way. That's the biggest challenge for small companies when it's, you get these giant contracts. Yeah, you, can't, you can't mess that up. Exactly. That's what our last round was for. It was really for building up inventory to start working in retail. Mm-hmm. And it was specifically for, you knew it was that Whole Foods was coming up? Or I knew just, Whole Foods would just... happen. I didn't know that it was going to happen for sure on that timeline. It happened very quickly. Yeah. But I knew we were going to make a push towards retail and, you know, something that it's a blessing, but also a challenge. Inventory has been a constant struggle. I mean, working capital constraints of a CPG company. Um, so that has been challenging for us. And I knew we kind of had to build a cushion moving into retail. So I'm going to ask you about what type of company you are, because I asked you that earlier in different contexts. But what about a retail store? Us doing like a branded retail store? Yeah, like um, the way that Warby Parker started mm-hmm. with the store here too. I mean, they have many now, but or many, many brands have done that, which is really kind of interesting because the whole world moved away from bricks and mortar. And now they are like Warby Parker to me is my favorite example because they were all online. That was their entire pitch. Next thing you know, they got the stores and, you know, there's one not far from where we are now in um, Columbus that has, I think they open at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. There's people waiting to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't happen at every retail store. Certainly doesn't. Warby Parker is an amazing company. So I think a lot about proactive versus reactive buyers. And with medicine, often it's reactive. So often it's, uh, think about you, a parent. You don't feel good. You, yeah. You yeah. You're, you're grocery help. shopping and mm-hmm. you have a kid in the sitting in the cart who's crying because they have a sore throat. And you need to grab what's there and you're at the grocery store, you're at Whole Foods and you see the propolis throat spray for kids. We make it for kids version. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think initially that is where our customer base will be. I also think unlike eyeglasses, we have a lot of consumer education we have to do. Mm. Nobody knows, well, most people don't know what propolis or royal jelly are. And right. we have to really work hard at creating educational campaigns yep. to teach people how these products work, mm. how they can incorporate uh, them into their life. A retail store would be very helpful. For sure. But I don't think we would be able to touch as many consumers and I don't think 
because it's a reactive purchase, I don't think it would be as easy to get people in store. I think when we have a more expansive product offering, mm-hmm. uh, that will be a different story. And maybe one day that's something we do as a marketing play. But there are so many natural wellness stores where people are going in looking for these products that it was you know, a natural move, I think, to expand into that area. Yeah, I can see pop-ups and all that and really about branding more than anything mm-hmm. else, right? Very interesting. Uh, what's the next stage? Gearing up for Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. And that's a giant thing. You continue, I guess, to create new products. Mm-hmm. Are you expanding more aggressively beyond B ingredients as part of your product mix? Are you looking at other creatures that nature uh, that we know 300 BC stuff has been created and it's being used, but nobody knows about it except for this little guy in Florence? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the story there? So we're expanding our product offering. We are moving beyond bees in terms of ingredients, but we're incorporating bee products into everything. The nice thing is, you know, royal jelly is great for the brain. Propolis is great for inflammation and immunity. Pollen is great for energy levels. Honey is antibacterial as well, and it's full of antioxidants. So all of these things act nicely as ingredients with a lot of other incredible plant-based ingredients. So that's kind of how we're looking at product development. But the intention is to reinvent the medicine cabinet. So we're looking at things like allergies. We're looking at immunity in a broader capacity. We're looking at brain health. We're looking at sleep, like all of these different pillars of health. We're looking at how we can disrupt. So we are aiming to reinvent the medicine cabinet and hopefully over the next few years, we'll launch some more great products to help people feel good. And not necessarily or only based on bee. Every product will have a core ingredient from the beehive, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So you had a lot of people that were telling you you shouldn't be doing this. And now, you know, things are starting to take off and Whole Foods is the strongest signal of such a thing. What are they saying now? Now everyone's pretty excited about it. Remember, I told you to do this. I'm so glad you listened to me. Yeah. It's all the sense everybody else's idea. I always knew you could do this. I always knew you were an entrepreneur. (laughs) Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? I don't. Well, my dad, he was a corporate lawyer and he moved into private equity. And so I was exposed to sort of deal world pretty early. And I'm very close with him. And he did a great job of exposing me to that. My mom was a teacher. She is not involved in the business world at all, but she is a highly empathetic, thoughtful person, and she's very creative. And I think, you know, that just growing up around her was supportive for how I've developed my marketing skills. Yeah. And then my sister is a dentist, which couldn't be further from what I do. (laughs) Were you always kind of into creating things when you were little? I was. Yeah, I was always very creative. I always wanted to figure out different ways to do things. Mm -hmm. I was kind of a... You didn't have just the lemonade stand thing. You were trying to create the product or these yeah I was always doing weird actually this is kind of funny I was talking about this with my mom recently my first ever business venture was also having to do with insects I had a babysitting camp for caterpillars so I would <laughs> literally go around to my neighbor's houses and ring their doorbells with a mason jar and ask to collect their caterpillars mm-hmm. I said I would babysit them all day and then return them at the end of the day. So, yeah, not your lemonade stand. I was a bit of a weird kid. How how old were you when you came up with that one? Oh, my gosh. I was very young. I think, like, max five. I don't know. Really young. That's funny. And what about the rest of your team? How have you found? Like, how many people work for uh, beekeepers now? So, we are 25 people now. Um, All different ways. Our core team, I was just really fortunate. I mean, it's really funny. Like, our data analyst, he was a barista at a cafe that I worked at. Um, How did you find? My co founder and I would work at this and cafe and talking yep. to him mm-hmm. and we just kind of figured you're smart you can do something and it turns yeah. out he can do a lot of things what's his job now for you? he 
is our data analyst. Yeah, you know, yeah, he's very talented. You're preaching to the choir on this. I am a big believer in finding talent under your nose everywhere you go. Yep. You just have to open your eyes and see that. You know, one of the top places that many people have found talent are servers and restaurants. Mm-hmm. Because what is that? It's called customer relationship. That's customer service. And it translates from a restaurant into all kinds of different things. Totally. A senior member of our ops team was also working in a restaurant. One of our sales team members who's fantastic was a personal trainer. Now we're starting to hire people from kind of larger competitor companies. So, you know, we have a real mix, but consistently the lesson I'm learning when it comes to team building, it's about the attitude towards learning and growth. Mm -hmm. And it's not about experience and it's Mm -hmm. not about academic accolades. It's really just the growth mindset that That, that is a predictor of success. Keep learning and keep getting better. At a startup because it's, I mean, for example, going from a direct to consumer business to a retail focus, the entire business model is changing right now. And the people on the team who have a real growth oriented mindset are thriving. They're loving it. They're picking things up quickly and moving. Mm -hmm. And luckily my team is mostly comprised of people with that mindset. But I have witnessed people you know at other points in time who often come from more established backgrounds or come from larger companies that have a real struggle with Mm. being kind of flexible in that way is there an age or experience factor in here or it's not that broad you know someone has been doing something or working for a period of time and age and experience are highly correlated Mm -hmm. but they're used to doing things a certain way and then you kind of, you know, in a startup, you're you're pivoting, you're adjusting, you're organic, really, in what you're creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people can certainly get set in their ways. Our team, I mean, we have a pretty broad age range. It's anywhere from like 20, I think our youngest employee is 23, into 50s. Yeah, so yeah. it's mostly attitude mm-hmm. that is the, the factor there. The mindset that you're referring to, you know this, but I'll make sure everyone else does, is uh, Carol Dweck's work at Stanford, which is fantastic work. I talk about that a lot, and it turns mm-hmm. out to be highly related to my research, which is unrelated to hers, on senior executives and what accounts for the most successful leaders versus the less successful ones. I just reread that book. So I read that book when I left Goldman. Growth Mindset. Yeah. And it really, that book really allowed me to start the company. I I think I really had a fixed mindset and I had this whole narrative about why I couldn't do things Mm -hmm. and why somebody else Mm -hmm. would probably do this if it's a good opportunity, which is the exact mindset that holds everyone back from the great things that they're capable of. And so reading that book was very, very important for me. I'm a little surprised to hear you say that, that you thought that you couldn't do it because you're not conveying any of that right now, that's for sure. I mean, I'm a type A anxious person. I can be pretty critical of myself, but I always do what I'm scared of as a role. So I have a lot of thoughts that are potentially limiting, but I push past them. Yeah. So how do you do that? So now we're not talking so much beekeepers. We're talking about <laughs> therapy and leadership at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah. How do you get yourself a... People talk about getting out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Everyone says that's a good thing. It is a fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. That's where the learning really is. But it's not that easy. Yeah, it's very challenging. It's constant work. And I think, I mean, the biggest part of it is really adopting that growth mindset, understanding Mm -hmm. that we can all evolve. We all have, you know, equal capacity to be what we need to be. And really questioning the stories we're putting forward. We, we put forward a lot of stories around things and really questioning, are they true? Is that coming from me? Is that a social construct? Do I want to believe that? And can I change that? Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about that. It also implies that things don't always work. Failure happens. Mm-hmm. So what happens when someone in your team screws up? I never, ever have been upset with failure. Negligence is different than failure. Mm-hmm. Negligence can be frustrating. Um, failure is a great opportunity to learn, always. Yeah. And I I fail at things constantly and I work really hard to look at them in a critical and constructive way and move forward. 
There's a great story about Jay Shiat, if you ever heard of the firm Shiat Day, very big advertising agency. And Jay Shiat, one of the founders, and, and they did traditional advertising, not this is pre-digital dominating <laughs> advertising. And there was a team that was bidding for a contract with a major company, and they didn't get it. And they didn't get it because they were too far out there for the client. They were too avant-garde. And Jay Shiat, the CEO, rewarded them for missing for the right reason. Mm-hmm. because you went for it, not because you were afraid, not because you didn't want to kind of put everything into it. You did exactly what you think is right. You went all out for it. You went maybe a little further than what the client could do, that was ready to do. But that's the mistake I want you to make. It's kind of interesting, the notion, I mean, you can't keep making that mistake either. But if you're going to make a mistake, make the mistake by going a little bit farther rather than being afraid to get out of your chair. Exactly. We live this with our digital marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, digital marketing is a huge part of our growth story and we're constantly trying out new creative new messaging all of that and we learn a lot from what doesn't work yeah so that's part of your data analytics really right yep so back to the whole foods that's b2b and you were b2c mm-hmm. before and that's a big big change now well you're both actually, yes now we're now, both right? you're both but that's a really different world have you had to bring in new people or are you bringing in new people that we are come, that come from that world yep So we've we've brought in a few new team members to work on our sales team. We've brought in a very senior operations manager. Mm -hmm. And then we're working how it works in the retail environment typically is you work with brokers and distribution companies. And so we're starting to do that. So, for example, the brokerage company we work with, they have, you know, a couple hundred reps. And so then it's our responsibility to educate each of those reps and work with them to interface with Whole Foods and whatever retail accounts they service. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you have, you know, if everyone takes on one client, you have Whole Foods because that's too important. Yeah, Whole Foods is very important. I work very closely with our sales team. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, very much a part of that. And my co-founder gets involved too as needed. He's, as I mentioned, on the operations side, Mm -hmm. but it's structurally such a change and structurally a big change for our operations team as well. And so we're both pretty involved with that account. So, you know, things are really going well. Going, It's exciting. What are you worried about? What are you worried about that could go wrong? Well, all the retail launches are very scary because it's funny, like everybody's very excited about us getting into Whole Foods mm-hmm. and it's great. And I'm incredibly grateful and excited when my team has worked very hard to make that happen. But once you're in there, that's when like the real race begins because mm-hmm. you need to have good velocity. Like you need to sell product when you're in there and your data is kept in its public record. And if we do not do well in those stores, then we're not going to have reorders and it will be very hard for us to expand. So not only is it about creating, having the inventory cushion, having the structural ability to supply Mm -hmm. these stores all across the U.S., we have to have the right marketing initiatives to work in all of these very, very different markets. Yeah, that's actually a big deal because if it doesn't work, it's going to be hard to get back up. Exactly. Because you're in the big playing field now and everyone can watch and everyone sees Mm -hmm. A lot of companies who are, you know, hot up and comers mm-hmm. really lose steam in retail and, you know, shut down after that. And that's not going to happen to us. We're very well prepared. The the partner that led our Series A has an incredible, the reason we really went with them, they were strategic partners. They have a really strong retail background. Um, that's what they do. They focus on consumer products as a fund and they're very, very strong there. So they've been providing great mentorship, but we're spending so like a lot of our time, my creative team, I mean, we're having regular working sessions just focused on how we can support stores. What does a typical day look like? 
I know no day is typical, but <laughs> I'm always curious. Okay, so what a typical day right now as we're launching in retail, I'll probably have a few sales-related meetings a day, whether it's sales meetings with my team, whether it's with new accounts, whether it's you know sourcing with new buyers. And then for me, product development is my wheelhouse. So I'm spending, I would say, two to three hours a day on that. And that can be on the phone with different people on our chem team or you know third-party companies we're working with. And then the rest of the day is really spent with creative. And so I'll spend a lot of time with our copywriter, our creative director. Um, I'm right now trying to hire a marketing manager. So I'd to ask you that once you, <laughs> as soon as you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, you're still small, but that's not what you need to spend all your time on. Yeah, no, no, no. I need a you marketing manager. A CMO type person that knows, knows how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So we are looking for that right now. So I'm also spending a lot of time interviewing right yes. now. The past four months, I have spent a ton of time interviewing. We've, the team's grown really quickly. It's, it went from like, oh my gosh, maybe four or five people a year and a half ago to 25 people. So yeah, we've had fast. to like staff up very quickly. And that's leadership is probably the most important part of my job. So I spend a lot of time with that. And so I try to break down my day with internal versus external. Mm-hmm. So internal is, you know, our creative team, our sales team, mm-hmm. whoever really needs me on the team. And then external would, you know, our chem team, of course. And then external would be third, like suppliers, mm-hmm. buyers and store related and then media. Yeah. You know, CEOs of uh, larger companies can spend as much as 25% of their time on people. Mm-hmm. on talent and that's those are enormous companies and I have a feeling in smaller companies it's not always the case because there's too many things you got too many mm-hmm. you know hats in the air but in fact it's even more important because that's how you grow absolutely just a few minutes left so a couple of things I want to do a quick like super quick word association with you okay and then maybe ask you for a little bit of advice mm-hmm. that you would give okay so word association Wall Street no sleep <laughs> <laughs> bees propolis Canada home your parents Love. Oh, this is these are great answers. <laughs> this podcast. Fun. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Um, I like to ask my guests on the Sidcast one question. It's always the same, and I'm going to ask you this. It's a little different because you're closer to the age I'm going to put you back to. Imagine going back to when you were 21 years old, and you see the 21-year-old Carly working somewhere, doing whatever she was doing, and you kind of sit next to her, and you lean over, and you say, there's one thing you really need to know about life, about what you could fill in the blanks. What would that be? What advice would you give yourself when you were 21? Spend less time worrying and trying to paint a clear picture and action plan for the future and just get the things in front of you done and focus on skill set. All that matters. I say this to my team all the time. People sometimes come out of school and they're looking, and I do a lot of mentoring as well. And so I have this conversation, people are looking for a fancy job title or something that's going to set them down a particular path Mm -hmm. or even a paycheck. The only thing that matters potentially ever, but particularly early in your career is building the right skill set. So put yourself in a position where you're going to grow and be challenged and money and titles and all those other things will be thrown at you if you do that. You're wiser beyond your years because <laughs> that's the only answer that I give to people, not necessarily who age of 21, but I coach and mentor you know, lots of young people and some older people as well. And I talk about when you're in a job, what's the slope of learning? And as long as that slope is actually increasing, that's the, that's a perfect place. When it starts to level off, that's when you need to get a new job. It's not the right place for you anymore. And that's a scary thing because once you become quasi-expert at something and it starts to level off, you can start making a lot of money. And so not everyone listens to that advice. I understand people have different needs and interests, but if it's all about learning, you've got to always stay a step a step ahead. It's advice I give to my daughter, and I love that you shared something quite similar. Carly, it's been a pleasure having you on the SIDCast. Thanks for sharing with us and uh, all my listeners, and good luck to you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.